0: Rock Talk Radio.
1: believe I do believe uh, we've hit a wee bit of a rough patch haven't we in the history of our country to say the least um, so a full show for you today um, <clears throat> most of the show of course will be on the protests the riots George Floyd the police um, I got Cornell West I got killer Mike there are bright spots of leadership that we'll get to. Uh, I'll also show you what the deal is in the UK and how they handle situations involving police brutality, Um, or actually I should say the lack thereof, because there is no police brutality. I'll give you the specifics on that. Uh, It's quite a story. And then we have Trump signed an executive order against Twitter. This is later on in the show. Um, Michael Moore's film, Planet of the Humans, was removed from YouTube. Um, We have a new dark money ruling, dark money rule on elections, which is going to somehow corrupt our insanely corrupted elections even more than they already are. So a lot of stuff to get to today. Going to be a busy show, going to be a heavy show. Without further ado, let's get started, and we'll do that with an update on uh, George Floyd. So we have an update on the killing of George Floyd and uh, what the authorities are saying now. This is from the medical examiner, and I regret to inform you that it looks like the fix is in. So you can see here, this is a screen capture from CNN Uh, The medical examiner said the following, quote, The autopsy revealed no physical findings that support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. Mr. Floyd had underlying health conditions, including coronary artery disease and hypertensive heart disease. The combined effects of Mr. Floyd being restrained by the police, his underlying health conditions, and any potential intoxicants in his system likely contributed to his death. So that's what we call a slap in the face. And this is a situation where they say, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? I can guarantee you one thing. If you take away one part of that recipe, George Floyd is still alive. And, of course, the part I'm talking about is the knee on the neck for nine minutes. Apparently, the officer kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for minutes after George Floyd was already dead. So I don't want to hear anything about the underlying health conditions, coronary artery disease, hypertensive heart disease. Even if that's true, that is not what led to the death even a little bit. Methinks if you put anybody under the knee of a police officer for nine minutes, I think I would die. I think you would die. I think the overwhelming majority of people would die. Maybe with the exception of, some professional bodybuilders who have so much muscle around their neck that they could somehow not get, uh, you know, strangled in that way. So this is, and just so everybody understands, because this is a very important story, what this shows you is they're in cahoots. They're in cahoots. So the medical examiner is in cahoots um, with the cops. The prosecutor is in cahoots with the cops. Now, there is good news on that front because we have um, Keith Ellison has now been appointed for the case and that is that you can breathe a sigh of relief because now we know for sure at least they will attempt to get justice, whereas previously I was concerned that it was definitely going to be a show trial, okay? But when you look at what the medical examiner is saying here, this is absolutely a slap in the face, and even if you're naive enough and gullible enough to buy the thing about, oh, maybe it was the underlying health conditions that really contributed to his death. Okay, but look at that last line because they give away the game there. They're too blunt with it. They're too straightforward with it. They don't take the rough edges off of their propaganda. And I'll read it to you one more time here. They say, his underlying health conditions and any possible or potential intoxicants in his system likely contributed to his death. Potential intoxicants. Potential intoxicants. Hey, there's absolutely zero evidence at all that he was on drugs, but if we throw in a line about maybe he's on drugs, then maybe that'll help our case. Because, and the case they're trying to build is like unhealthy, thug, gangster. So what did you expect? Is it real? I think it's more his fault that he's dead. Oh, Jesus. We've seen this playbook time and time and time and time and time again. I mean, when it came to Eric Garner... I can't breathe the original. There was an illegal chokehold used against them, and all he was doing was like selling loose cigarettes or something like that. And he kept screaming, I can't breathe, and he wound up dead. And I have to tell you guys again, the only time I've seen justice in cases um, that are similar, police brutality cases, is the Walter Scott case. And in the Walter Scott case, he literally had to turn around, run away, and dude was like, 10 or 20 feet away, maybe even as far as 25 feet away, running away back to the officer, the cop pulls out his gun, casually, slowly, aims, fires, and murders him. And that's the only case I can remember where, and it was the most egregious, where there was actually justice and the cop was found guilty and is now in prison. You know, in the Eric Garner case, if I remember correctly, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, I think he got off. And again, there was a lot of evidence, a lot of bits and pieces that they were rigging it from day one. They were doing everything they possibly could uh, in order to make sure that this guy got off and saw no consequences. And then now again, we're seeing the medical examiner is already setting the table for, and kind of letting everybody know like, Hey, if, if something, if nothing gets done here and if there's no justice and I mean, what do you want us to do? It's, it's, his, it's not the asphyxia or the strangulation. Maybe it had a lot to do with the coronary artery disease and the hypertensive heart disease and the potential intoxicants. So we've seen this play out a thousand times. Expect stories coming out in the future uh, of like, hey, here's George Floyd's uh, previous criminal record. You know, in 1997, he stole a candy bar. And, and now we're going to talk about that and try to make people believe, like, oh, maybe he had it coming, bro. But people aren't buying it, man. They're not buying it. Again, you're asking us to believe you over our lying eyes, and our eyes ain't lying. <laughs> we saw what we saw. We saw a knee on a neck for nine minutes, and we saw somebody begging because they can't breathe. And um, there has justice has to be served. And then, you know, like I was – like I try to mention in every single segment – in fact, I'll pull it up right now as I talk to you guys. But um, like I try to mention in every segment involving police brutality – I think we need to implement all of the reforms uh, that Campaign Zero is proposing. So, you know, it's easy, and we'll get to discussions on the protests in a little bit because there's a lot to say about what's going on, but it's easy for everybody to kind of get very angry, go out in the streets, and get wild, and just like let off steam in a way. But the only way we ever get positive change to prevent this stuff from happening in the future, is if we're organized, there's a strategy, and there are clear goals that we're fighting for. So when it comes to police brutality, I mean, the roadmap is laid out. You got to end the war on drugs. That's That's a duh kind of thing at this point, because in so many of these cases, that is the thing that almost allows the police to be more involved in people's lives than they should be and to be more authoritarian and disruptive than they should be, if we just didn't have a war on drugs and it wasn't a criminal penalty uh, to have drugs, use drugs, sell drugs, then you wouldn't see the police brutality. Now, and, and if people think, oh, my God, that's so extreme, we've had alcohol legal in this country since the end of Prohibition. Okay? And alcohol, yes, it does lead to many social ills, but people would rather have the freedom to choose than be over-policed with an authoritarian state micromanaging your private life. And people seem to understand that and get that when it comes to alcohol. When it comes to other drugs, all of a sudden it's, you know, pump the brakes, what are you talking about? And it, it, it's ridiculous. You should be consistent with your standard across the board here and let people choose what to put in their body. Um, but beyond that, you got to end broken windows policing. So now um, this is from the Campaign Zero site. You want community oversight boards for the police to make sure like, they can keep them in check, they can review. Um, you want to limit the use of force. So you want to have very clear-cut rules that are in force about what's allowed and what's not allowed. You want to have um, independent investigations and an independent prosecutor. Again, in this case, uh, thankfully, the police have been arrested, or the the one with the knee on the neck has been arrested. The other three have not. We'll see if that changes soon. Um, and been charged with, I believe, third degree murder. And Keith Ellison is now taking over the case, so that is a positive development. Uh, you want community representation in the police departments because it's much less likely that people, you know, revert to violence, resort to violence when it's some. It's somebody who came from the community, and so everybody kind of knows everybody to one extent or another, so you're more likely to be lenient and only really try to, you know, police when it's absolutely vital and necessary. Um, Body cameras need to be mandatory. There need to be strict rules about they can never be turned off. Um, The training needs to be done to emphasize de-escalation. We'll get to a story later because a lot of people will think, like, oh, my God, That's not possible. Like, we're so used to this, you know, the situation that we have now where there's so many instances of police brutality. But I'm going to show you what happens in other countries, and it's going to blow your mind. Um, We need to end for profit policing, another no brainer. We need to demilitarize the cops. You know, there's been a, a really incredible move in this country towards making the military a standing army. I mean, they literally get access to weapons of war. And that should not be allowed. Those are different things. You know, the military and the police, those should be two totally different uh, mindsets. And just for the record, that's not to say that it's okay to be, like, extra violent overseas. Of course, I think we're way too militaristic and we need to cut the military budget on that front and we need to end all these wars and, and all that stuff. But still, you cannot have a militarized police force. That, you know, when you, all you have is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail is the old saying, and that's so true. So these guys are just waiting to, to use force because they have that option. Um, and then, of course, we want to have fair police union contracts that do not protect cops at all costs, especially when they do things that are wildly egregious and criminal in their own respect. So I think that you know, these are very clear policy goals that absolutely would change the nature of policing in this country and you know i'll do my best to keep my eye on the developments in the case uh but right now we're definitely getting mixed vibes because on the one hand um you did have them get arrested or you at least had the worst offender get arrested you have them charged and keith ellison is now in control of the case those are positive things um but you know on the other hand this quote from the medical examiner is really terrifying because it shows that there are some things going on behind the scenes and strings being pulled and they're going to try to do everything they possibly can to uh... wiggle their way out of accountability and wiggle their way out of justice and i think that has a lot to do with why people are in the streets right now because they're fed up and honestly I think that what we're seeing in terms of what's going on in every major city around the country right now, I think it goes beyond this, too. Yes, this was the spark that got everybody out there in the streets, but make no mistake about it, people are hurt. People are in pain. A lot of that does have to do with police brutality, but we also live in a failed state now. We also live in an oligarchy that just did the um, you know, the largest transfer of wealth upwards maybe in U.S. history as people got crumbs during a pandemic, and they can't pay the damn bills. So there's a lot going on right now that's contributing to this, but this quote from the medical examiner is not good. And uh, you'll know pretty clearly who the good guys are and the bad guys are moving forward, because the bad guys will reveal themselves with time. Okay. Okay. All right, now let's go to the chaos that's hitting the streets. This is a, t- I mean, all this stuff is very tough to, to talk about and dive into and parse. So let, let's do our best here. I'll show everybody. <clears throat> Absolute chaos and mayhem has hit the streets of America. There are major protests around the country virtually every major city um, now we have peaceful protests and then there are all also are instances of violent protests happening you can call them riots there's there's looting as well um, now what I'm gonna show you here is a compilation this is from Jordan Yule on Twitter many police departments have not been handling this well at all And you see the in-group, out-group mentality kicking in, and they're being vicious, they're being violent, and they're breaking the laws in in many instances. Um, So we also saw the police, and I think this says a lot, guys, this little story actually says a lot to the mindset, but in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, the police took down the American flag that was flying in front of um, their office in front of their department, and they put up the thin blue line flag, which is like the police flag. So I think that shows a lot of the in-group, out-group mentality, the tribalism, the protect-your-own mindset. And honestly, that has a lot to do with why we have so much police brutality compared to the rest of the world in this country that that mindset overrides a concern um, for justice and doing the right thing and protecting and serving. So um, here's a compilation, again, credit to Jordan Ewell for putting this together, and he got it from a lot of these things that were floating around on social media. But here's some of what's been going on and what the cops are doing. Now, it is the height of irony, and it's absolutely heartbreaking that police brutality was the spark that got everybody in the streets in the first place, and then many police departments are responding to that with more police brutality. And by the way, this is just a little snippet of what's going on. There's like a thousand more clips that I've seen that weren't part of this compilation, but they're, I mean, really disturbing stuff, man. You saw in, in South Bend, Indiana, you saw a police officer, oh, peaceful protesters in front of him, He just throws tear gas at him, And then somebody, people start running, and then they further crack down and use violence. This stuff is inexcusable. And you have to understand something. Cops are supposed to be... The professionals in the situation. So they're supposed to know how to de escalate, they're supposed to know how to diffuse a situation, um, how to protect and serve. And this is the opposite. Guys, we gotta be honest about what we're looking at here. In many instances, these are people looking for a fight. The cops are looking for a fight. They're again, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And these guys are armed to the teeth. And you even saw instances there of shooting rubber bullets at the media. And then there was another instance where a CNN reporter got arrested live on air, casually talking, doing his job. It's so clear that he's not doing anything illegal or wrong, and he's just covering the protests. And the cops arrest him live on camera. That is just brazen, disgusting disrespect. For the first amendment and not understanding the first amendment and really they're acting like this because many of them want to be authoritarians want to flex some muscle want to show everybody who's boss and and pacify the population and all this stuff needs to be condemned across the board i don't care what your ideology is and that gets to a frustrating part of this like we had conservatives just recently, you know, talk about the protest to open back up the economy. You had these armed right-wing people in the Michigan State House, you know, covering their face. They have their weapons. And conservatives portrayed that and discussed that as if, yes, this is what we need. This is liberty. This is freedom. And we want the government out of our lives down with tyranny, and so we support these protests. Now, in this instance, they've done a total 180. And now the position is 100% take the side of the cops, even if they're acting in an authoritarian fashion. Um, And all of a sudden, the concerns about freedom and liberty and the First Amendment and down with tyranny, now that's out the window. And they're screaming for daddy government to crack down on these protests, so they flip their position completely. It's really frustrating to see how few principled voices there are out there. Um, and so, now everything to this point that we've been talking about has been about cops. I will not join in with the parade of people who are going to act like the protesters have done nothing wrong. Now there are many peaceful protesters who've done nothing wrong, but you got to keep it real, and there is quite a bit of violence where it appears like rioters started it. So in other words, they weren't just acting in self-defense in some respects. There have been many small businesses that have been looted. There have been many small businesses that have been burned down. Um, And I absolutely think that has to be condemned as well. And they've even gone as far as this. Look at this. I saw this yesterday Um, in Richmond, Riders set fire to a multifamily residence that was occupied by a child and then tried to block the fire crew from rescuing the child. So that's disturbing, and that also has to be completely condemned. And I think it's, it's kind of weaselly and kind of chicken shit when you have people pretend on the left that, like, well, since, I'm against the police brutality, and I'm against the killing of George Floyd, and I'm against the authoritarian actions of the cops. Therefore, we can rationalize and justify every single action of every single person in the streets. And that's just, I think, ridiculous, because you have to look at everything on a case-by-case basis, and you have to see what you think is reasonable and what you think crosses a line. And I think, hopefully, everybody can look at that and condemn it, setting Fire to a multifamily residence that was occupied by a child, and then block the fire crew from rescuing the child. That's unacceptable. There's another thing that's been going around on social media. It's a a clip from the 1992 LA riots, where there's this older black man who just had his business burned down, just had his truck, you know, vandalized, and he's out there crying and screaming and saying, you know, "Uh, you're not. I didn't do anything to you. Why? Why do I have to suffer the brunt? of your actions here. I agree with you about what happened to Rodney King was wrong and the cops shouldn't have got off and this was a travesty and this was a tragedy. But why do you have to destroy my business? Why do you have to, you know, why do you have to ruin my life? I didn't do it. So that resonates with me as well. Now, later on, we will discuss what is the right approach? What is the right strategy? what is acceptable what's not acceptable um there's some evidence that violence even though i think it's wrong in principle unless it's in self-defense that violence in some instances in apartheid south africa um of some of the violence in the 1960s in the civil rights movement that and this is no pun intended or anything here but when you play good cop bad cop with the government that it makes the government more likely to listen to the good cop so in other words Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. needed Malcolm X. Now, Malcolm X didn't really believe in violence. He said more for self-defense, but he did attack MLK for, you know, preaching nonviolence as strongly as he did and being as principled as he was. He thought it was a little silly that you would sing We Shall Overcome as their, you know, cops are beating you over the head. But MLK kind of needed Malcolm to make MLK look reasonable. And Mandela needed the riots in the streets in South Africa to make the authorities in South Africa go, well, this guy, Nelson Mandela, seems pretty reasonable, so we could work out something with him. So there is a question about the utility of violence, whether or not it's right or wrong in principle, Um, and we'll have that conversation later because there's some interesting academic research that just came out about this, which actually has a pretty concrete answer, which I think some people will find very surprising. But I do think that we need to be reasonable about this and nuanced about this and understand there's also gradations. Like, for example, everybody who I've talked to about this seems to have the same opinion, that, yeah, violence is wrong, but, I mean, if there was going to be looting that happened, would you rather have it be Target, Walmart, or, like, a mom-and-pop shop? (laughs) The general consensus appears to be that, like, it's wrong to do it to a mom-and-pop shop, but it's not as wrong, although it's still wrong to do it to, you know, some sort of, a big chain store that could obviously recover, but I think it also needs to be said, guys, that people are out there... Now, again, this is not to defend people who are doing the wrong things, but people are out there because they snapped. They broke. They had enough. They couldn't deal with it anymore, and George Floyd was the spark, but really, people are out there in the streets because of George Floyd, because of they want to end police brutality and bring about justice, but also... We have a pandemic, and we have a Great Depression, and people don't have UBI, people don't have health care, people can't pay the bills. As soon as they allow evictions and foreclosures again, there's going to be millions of people being evicted and being foreclosed on. And so people saw the largest upward uh, transfer of wealth in U.S. history on top of the police brutality and the authoritarianism and the tyranny, and they snapped. So I think to try to diagnose what's happening and why people are out there in the streets, okay, that's not the same thing as excusing all of the actions, including the most extreme actions. You understand what I'm saying? So there's going to be, and people are so on edge right now that they're just waiting for somebody to say something the tiniest bit wrong so they can pounce, but to try to explain to try to understand and explain why this is happening is not the same thing as excusing all the actions. and I would submit to you guys that really this is more of like a math problem than anything else. So in other words, three plus two equals five, and when you have what we've been seeing in this country going on for as long as it's been going on, this of course this was going to happen at some point. of course there was going to be Something, the straw that broke the camel's back, the spark that ignited it, that really is now just leading to a total, you know, backlash and outpouring and the fabric of society is coming apart right in front of our eyes. And, you know, I have nothing but disdain for those who brought us to this position and also are still gleefully unaware that they brought us to this position. You know, it really is the case that our leaders have failed us time and time again. It really is the case that Washington is completely corrupt and serving elites, serving the wealthy, serving the billionaires, serving the corporations, screwing over everybody else. It really is the case that the people who are supposed to be protecting and serving the population are authoritarian overlords. They're trying to pacify the population with rank violence, with immoral and unethical violence. And um, I have nothing but disdain for the people who brought us to this position. And I don't know what to tell you guys other than I don't know how long this this is going to go on, but the thing that scares me, and we'll close this segment on this note, the thing that scares me is the total lack of leadership and defined goals. Because if the violence continues and the protests continue, both the peaceful protests and the violence and, and the riots, if it continues as it is, then ultimately, at some point, the government will step up their crackdown, and the movement will be defeated. They have all the weapons. They have all the power. Don't kid yourself. In, in the sense that they have the monopoly on violence. Um, so we need clear, strong, intelligent leadership to navigate us through these waters and get us to a place where we want to be in terms of clear goals. Like I said, when it comes to police brutality, I really think the answer is what Campaign Zero was pushing. End broken windows policing, community oversight boards, limit the use of force, independently investigating prosecute cops who commit crimes, community representation, body cams uh, that film the cops and you can't shut them off, uh, new training for de-escalation, end for-profit policing, demilitarization, fair police union contracts. But really, we need strong leadership that gets us there and then also helps fix the rest of society, which has led us to this point where people feel feel like there's absolutely no hope. And we'll get to these stories later, but you have Cornell West and you have Killer Mike, who came out uh, and Cornell West did on CNN. Um, Killer Mike gave a speech, and what they showed me is they're some of the few voices who have the clear moral vision and have the standing to lead in a moment like this. So really what we're looking at here, this could with the right leadership, with the right goals, energy could be harnessed into being a more productive new civil rights movement in a way and a new poor people's campaign. That's what could be done. But if we don't have that strong leadership, if we don't have that moral vision then I I fear that this is all going to be amorphous anger and rage that will eventually be put down by the jackboot of government thugs. And um, I'm definitely leaning more in the direction of eventually it's going to be put down and history will record what happened as simply response to what happened to George Floyd and police brutality, and that's it and we need to learn from the previous generation the civil rights movement we need to learn that we got to be organized we got to strategize we got to have clear leadership and clear goals and you have to harness the energy for positive outcomes ultimately you know this is just a flash in the pan then again it's a blip on the radar screen and nothing changes we need to use the energy to make sure that stuff changes and again i'm i don't know if that's going to happen. I'm towards thinking it's not going to happen based on the nature of what's been happening so far. But Killer Mike and Cornell West, in my mind, could lead in this moment and be remembered by history as, you know, the next Martin Luther King Jr., if you will. So a lot of stuff going on out there that's devastating and heartbreaking. Um, It really does feel like this point in history is like if you put the Great Depression, the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, and the tumultuous 1960s all into one, and then also sprinkle on top the existential threat of climate change. Sprinkle on top the war in Vietnam, because we're still in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's basically, you know, the culmination of a crumbling empire we're definitely in imperial decline. And I was gonna say we're watching it in slow motion, but now the slow, slow motion just kind of sped up, didn't it? Okay, next. Let me try to give everybody some positive stuff to take away. It is positive time, it is positive time, let me give you some positive shit. So I know that, uh, you know, we're in the midst of chaos and mayhem going on around the country right now, um, but I want to show you there is there are rays of hope. And um it is possible that we can come out of this situation with uh, with some fixes, some some real changes that um, could make us all safer and make the country more equal and less vicious. So what you're going to see here this is um, this is Michigan sheriff Chris Swanson, and you're going to see the video of him and how he handled protests and what he and his department did, because this is very unique compared to what all the other police departments are doing around the country. Uh, So he's going to show you how adults can and should handle this situation. And then also you're going to see there's a video that Michael Tracy posted on Twitter. He went to one of these New Jersey protests, and there uh, there was a protester there who was very angry at people who were throwing bottles and throwing rocks at, I don't know if it was property or police or or cars or or what have you, but you're going to see both a protester who is trying to stay true to the nonviolence of the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, and you're going to see a police officer who's basically the polar opposite of like Bull Connor Who's like the epitome of an evil police, uh, you know, an evil police officer, or I guess he was a sheriff as well. So, anyway, let's take a look, and then we'll discuss.
0: We want to be with y'all for real, so I took my helmet off, They laid the baton down, I want to make this a parade, not a protest. You got little ones here, you got dogs, so. Listen up. So listen, I'm just telling you, these cops love you. That cop over there hugs people, so you tell us what you need to do. Not here not here 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 exactly. Not here and you need to pick the fuck up. We're not ass out here. We're not here for that. Y'all not from North. Shut the fuck up. to Where's everybody from? Y'all let them go bottles at? Come on now.
1: So some people are going to see that first video, and um, they're going to make an argument that, like, we're being hatched we're being took, we're being bamboozled, and no, that cop's not a good cop, and, you know, he's trying to almost infiltrate and undermine, these are arguments I've seen, the protest, because he said, oh, I don't want to make this protest, I want to make it a parade. So some people are interpreting that as like, see, he's got nefarious motives and he's not with you. But if you watch the video, the video goes on, and people are still, you know, they end up chanting, um... Black Lives Matter and the cops are still marching with them and um, no justice, no peace. And so I think people are reading too much into that statement. I don't think him saying, I want this to be a parade and not a protest. I don't think that's his way of saying, I don't agree with what you're aiming at. And my question to people who look at that video of the police officer who joined with the protesters and says, you know, that, that's not a good thing. My question to those people would be, Okay, then what do you prefer they do? What do you prefer a police department does? Because I've seen, I just played the video for everybody, of the endless barrage of police officers being authoritarian, initiating violence, using force in egregious circumstances. I just saw... Those videos, I just played those videos for you, and they're endless. And we're going to call it out when it happens. And this is why, like, Campaign Zero is so important because we need to have these reforms. We need to fix the system. But this situation is the best reaction, the best response, the best leadership I've ever seen. And it shows cops don't have to be authoritarian, cops don't have to use violence willy-nilly against people and have a, a, a tribalism mindset, an in-group, out-group mentality. They don't have to be like that. They could be like this. They could be like this. Now, if this cop or this department does something wrong, of course I'll call it out and disagree with it. But these kinds of actions, if, if this isn't good enough, if this isn't something positive to you, then there's, no, there's nothing that's positive. They, it's not possible to have a positive reaction. Just everything is bad by definition because the police do it, and I don't like the police. That's what that mindset would be. That mindset would be, there's nothing that you could do that they could do in order for me to say, okay, you handled that well. So, you know, if if every police department across the country reacted like this, I think we'd be in a much different situation today. Now, there is a little bit of a paradox and a little bit of a catch-22 that we're going to get into later. There was some very detailed research into the civil rights movement. And the guy looked into what's the most effective for really getting positive change. And the answer is going to surprise you. It surprised me. It's going to surprise you in a way that perhaps, you know, you're unprepared for. Because it really is a, a it really is, there are some stunning findings in there. And again, this stuff is proven. This stuff is verifiable. This stuff is empirical. So we'll get to that. But um, if, every, if every police department liked, acted like that across the country, I think there wouldn't be as much anger and hatred towards the police in the first place. And um, I just want to repeat it one more time because I always feel compelled in these segments to let everybody know what the, what the solutions are to end police brutality because I don't like it when people talk about this without bringing up solutions, because then it's like, well, what's the point? Why are we even talking about it if we're not going to try to improve it, not going to try to fix it? And Campaign Zero nailed it. End broken windows policing, community oversight boards, limit use of force, independently investigate and prosecute the bad cops, community representation, body cameras on the police that they can't turn off, um, new training to prioritize de-escalation and for-profit policing, demilitarization of the cops, and fair police union contracts, because the Unions always bend over backwards to help even the worst cops. We want to end that. So uh, those are the solutions. Now, in terms of what the protester was saying there, you know, there's this argument that's been used by the media. It's mostly BS, the argument of, like, oh, outside agitators are coming in, and they're really the ones doing the bad things. And it's like, well, there's protests in, like, almost every major city across the country. To have an outside agitator, that makes no sense. Why wouldn't? people just drive right to the protest that's happening closest to them, and then they will, by definition, not be outsiders. But in the few instances where you do have people who are acting violent and who are not known in the area, this was a protester who was standing up and saying, no, don't feed into the, the stereotype of what they want us to be. Don't, if, if you use gratuitous violence, then you're immediately going to be painted as the bad guy because the media is not really that sympathetic to you in the first place. And the second you do something negative, all the coverage is going to be through the prism, through the filter of we need law and order and we need to be tough on crime and we need to restore order. And so this protester was cognizant of the broader picture, the bigger picture, and said, don't feed into what they want us to be. They want us to be the bad guy. And so I think that these two videos are a little bit of a a ray of hope in an otherwise very dark time because cooler heads can prevail and we can get the kind of change that we need while also staying true to our moral principles. I've always hated arguments that were like, well, you know, you got to bend the rules a little bit. You got to go outside of your comfort zone. You got to maybe do some immoral and unethical things in order to get the positive change that we need. But I've always deeply believed in the argument that you are what you do. So if you believe in offensive violence, then there is no end to that. You believe in offensive violence. And you could justify and rationalize the worst kinds of actions and crimes because you've already bought into the framework of, well, since I'm a good guy, when I do it, it's okay. And that, that is the exact argument that you see from the worst people in history. Like, for example, the Bush administration. You know, they, they did offensive violence against countries that didn't attack us, and the argument was, and I think they truly believe this to one extent or another, well, but we're the good guys, so when we do it, we mean well, so it's okay. And it's like, no, you are what you do. And so you used offensive violence, you believe in offensive violence, that's That's unethical that's wrong that's bad that's not good and that's what you are so I think we should always try to stay true to our our moral principles and to our ethical positions even when the going gets tough and within that framework still bring about positive change and again I will get to a story later I'll give you I'll give you the academic research on this which will prove something that's surprising about what the best path is forward. But, um, you know, you want to say I'm naive, you want to say I'm a sucker for liking the response from that police officer, by all means. Call me a sucker, call me naive, I really don't care. Um, but if every police department across the country acted like that, there'd be a lot less people in the hospital and there wouldn't be police brutality. There would be you know, responsible leadership, and it would be cops acting like we all think they should act, like we all think they should act. Now compare this to, there was another, this was a crazy one. There was another instance of protesters chanting at police, take a knee, take a knee, take a knee. They were lined up, and the protesters were saying, take a knee, take a knee, take a knee. One officer, black officer, takes a knee whoever the sergeant was or whoever the person in command was, the highest-ranking officer there, pulled the black officer out of line, berated him, and then told him to get back in line and stay standing up. See, those are the competing philosophies. Well, actually, (laughs) also, we've just seen rank offensive violence from cops that I just played in a compilation for you in a previous segment. So those are the two competing philosophies. You have the positive one who's like, yeah, I'll, I'll march with the protesters, and, you know, we love you, and we're here with you, and, like, let's keep it peaceful and positive, and, and let's do this thing. And, by the way, it's not just me. You, again, you could say I'm a sucker naive for thinking that this is a positive thing, but the protesters themselves were appreciating it. They were all happy about the fact that there wasn't going to be some sort of violent standoff with authoritarian, tyrannical thugs like there were in other places around the country. So... um, those are the mindsets. You have the gratuitous, asinine, offensive violence, or you have the person who's sympathetic to the protesters and is showing real leadership. So that's positive. And the protesters who are you know, staying true to some semblance of morality and rationality, uh, I have nothing but unending respect for them for doing the hardest work imaginable, which is trying to bring about change while also... Never bending your own moral compass. Okay. All right, let's go to the next one. So in response to the ongoing protests across the country, um, Trump took to Twitter yesterday and he said the following The United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. Going to designate Antifa a terrorist organization. So let's run through the million ways in which this is absurd. First of all, Antifa is not an organization, it is 100% decentralized. There's no leadership, and it's totally amorphous. So how can you designate something like that, a terrorist organization? It's not an organization. Okay, that's the first point. The second point is, Antifa just stands for anti-fascist. That's all it stands for. And that's a very, very broad label. And listen, presumably, everybody's anti-fascist except for fascists. (laughs) Like, I get what they're trying the point that conservatives would try to make here, they're like, well, you know what we mean. We mean the people who cover their faces and are wearing all black and might throw a Molotov cocktail or something like that. Like, that's who we're talking about. But listen, if you're going to make the argument that anti-fascists need to be designated terrorists, I have a very simple question for these same people. Would you designate fascists as terrorists? If you said no to that, but you said no to designating anti-fascists as terrorists, might want to reevaluate your moral compass. (laughs) Because that's absolutely absurd. That's ridiculous. And, you know, my understanding is that under the law right now, fascists are not labeled as terrorists, but you're going to label anti-fascists as terrorists. So it's, I mean, that's really sketchy. That's really sketchy. Now, on top of that, And this is probably the most important point here. The real reason why he's doing this, the real reason why he would support something like this, is to criminalize protests full stop. So you say, oh, uh, Antifa are terrorists. And then you designate everybody who's protesting as Antifa. And then, by definition, all of them would be terrorists. And so what's the reaction that the government would take? Well, they would expand domestic spying. They would take away First Amendment rights. They would take away habeas corpus domestically. We already don't have it, you know, if we catch somebody who we claim is a terrorist from overseas, we don't give them a right to a trial. we put them in Guantanamo Bay. But this would be an expansion of that to not just foreign persons who don't have a right to a trial. This would expand that to Americans, because all they have to do is say, no, you don't get a trial. You don't get Miranda rights, you don't get your day in court. We've designated you a terrorist, you're a domestic terrorist, you're Antifa, and so there is no more rule of law and there are no more rights and protections. There is no more constitution. That's what he's doing here. So, I have to say, man, if you're if you're somebody on the right and you you know, you claim to love freedom and liberty and hate tyranny and you believe in small government, but you're cheering this on, God, Damn it, you're a sucker. Such a sucker. I mean, it's incredible if you fell for this, because there are implications to doing something like he's saying here. Designate them, designate uh, Antifa terrorists. Well, then, again, then all rules are out the window. When we declare you a terrorist, then we're going to take away all your rights. And again, you don't actually have to be a terrorist. They just need to claim that you're a terrorist. I don't know, you were at a protest and you were wearing black, so I think you're a terrorist. I think you're Antifa. And so your rights are gone. We'll lock you up and throw away the key. We'll spy on all these organizations that are organizing. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I mean, I know people say all the time, oh, that's Orwellian. But this is like the definition of it. This is as authoritarian as it gets. It doesn't get any more authoritarian than this. So if you're somebody who's libertarian by any stretch of the imagination, on the right or the left, you have to look at this and say, no, 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 not acceptable. And by the way, my whole speech here is coming, this is all from me, and I've expressed previously, I'm not a big fan of Antifa. Uh, I agree with Noam Chomsky. When Noam Chomsky said that Antifa is a giant gift to the right, I basically totally disagree with the strategy that people who identify as Antifa have taken. I don't agree with their strategy. I think their strategy is counterproductive, and it leads to left-wing defeats. So I agree with Chomsky. When Chomsky says anti-fuzzy gets to the right, I'm no fan of what they do. I'm a deep believer in nonviolent, peaceful resistance in you know, the vein of Martin Luther King Jr. And so they don't agree with that. I don't agree with them. But that doesn't mean you get to call them terrorists and designate them as terrorists and then have all these legal implications. And it, it is... Hell no. Pulling a hell no card on this one, man. No way. No way. So um, it really is telling, isn't it? They, the U.S. government does more to snuff out left-wing movements than they do to snuff out right-wing movements. And we've talked about this before, but they defunded the, the branch of the FBI that investigated right-wing extremists and white supremacists. And they redirected that all towards uh, Muslim extremism. That's what they did. Now, there's also, you know, there's been countless stories on... They put more resources towards what they call black identity extremists. Black identity extremists. There's more resources geared towards that than there are geared towards fighting right-wing extremism and white supremacy. I mean, listen, I know... I know the hypocrisy is all over the place, but god damn it! just look at the way that the Michigan protesters, who are right-wingers, they were armed, they went into the Michigan Capitol, look at how they were treated. No tear gas, no pepper spray, no widespread arrests, right? That's how they were treated. Compare that to all these protests happening across the country right now. Compare what Trump said. What did Trump say when we had the Charlottesville chaos that went down. And you had white supremacists who were protesting to keep up Confederate monuments. And they said, this is why we're here. They chanted, white lives matter and Jews will not replace us. And what did Trump do? He gave a speech, or he you know, was doing a press conference the next day, and he said, well, listen, listen, you know, there's a lot going on, but you have very bad people and very fine people on both sides, on both sides. So wait, 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 wait. Very fine people on both sides. That was when the protesters were white supremacists. I didn't hear him say anything about both sides now. Did he say anything about both sides now? Did he say anything about, hey, listen, sure, you got bad guys in Antifa. You got bad guy cops who are being violent for no reason. But there's good guys and bad guys on both sides. There's good protesters. He didn't say that, did he? Look who gets the benefit of the doubt, and look who doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. Unacceptable, man. Hell no on this front. Do not let this happen. Do not let him designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. I mean, we don't have that many many rights left. Like, our rights are gone. And they're going to take away the few remaining ones that are there. Terrifying moment in history. Okay, let me, let me take a break. And then when we come back, I got a lot of stuff to get to still. We're going I'm going to play the Cornell West commentary for you, the Killer Mike commentary. Again, these are going to be little positive spots in the midst of a bunch of chaos, so don't go anywhere. Stay right there. We'll be right back. back, bitch. You ain't getting rid of me. All right. uh, So like I said, we got Cornell West. We got Killer Mike. Really breaking it down. Really doing a superb job. Superb job talking about um, what's happening across the country right now. me set this up for y'all ready <clears throat> oh I fucked up hold on hold on take I got uh, lighting all fucked up here but it shall be fixed in 3 2 1 there we go Taken care of West went on CNN to discuss the George Floyd protests and what's happening across the country at the moment. And um, his breakdown was brilliant. This is part of it. We'll take a look and then we'll discuss. In
2: deep sadness, because, you know, I've been trying to bear witness over 53 years uh, telling the truth and trying to say something uh, about the uh, least of these, but I think we are witnessing America as a failed social experiment, and what I mean by that is that the history of black people for over 200 and some years in, in, in America has been looking at America's failure. Its capitalist economy could not generate and deliver in such a way that people can live lives of decency. The nation-state, its criminal justice system, its legal system could not generate protection of rights and liberties. And now our culture, of course, is so market-driven, everybody for sale, everything for sale. You can't deliver the kind of the kind of really real nourishment for soul, for meaning, for purpose. And so when you get this perfect storm of all of these multiple failures at these different levels of the American Empire. And Martin King already told us about that. When I saw those pictures there in Atlanta, you could see Martin right there in Atlanta saying, I told you about militarism. I told you about poverty. I told you about materialism. I told you about racism and all of its forms, whatever forms it takes. I told you about xenophobia. And what we've seen in America is now these chickens coming home to roost. You're reaping what you sow, and in this instant you have Brother George where it is so clear it is a lynching at the highest level. Nobody can deny it, and I thank God that we have people in the streets. Can you imagine this kind of lynching taking place, and people are indifferent, people don't care, people are callous. You have just a few people out there with signs of, I recall the moments in which during the Reagan years. There was a few of out there. In the 60s, you had masses out there. Now you've got a younger generation of all of these different colors and genders and sexual orientation saying, we won't take it any longer. But you know what's sad about it, though, brother, at the deepest level? It looks as if the system cannot reform itself. We've tried black faces in high places. Too often our black politicians, professional class, middle class become too accommodated to the capitalist economy, too accommodated to the militarized nation state, too accommodated to the market-driven culture tied with celebrity status, power, fame, all of that superficial stuff that means so much to so many fellow citizens. And what happens? What happens is we got a neo fascist gangster in the White House who really doesn't care for the most part. You got a neo-liberal wing of the Democratic Party that is now in the driver's seat with the the collapse of Brother Bernie, and they don't really know what to do because all they want is show more black faces, show more black faces. But oftentimes these black faces are losing legitimacy too because the Black Lives Matter movement emerged under a black president, black attorney general, and black homeland security, and they couldn't deliver, you see. So that when you talk about the masses of black people, the precious poor and working-class black people, poor and working-class brown, red, yellow, whatever color, they're the ones who are left out, and they feel so thoroughly powerless, helpless, hopeless, then you get rebellion. And we've reached the point now it's a choice between nonviolent revolution, and by revolution what I mean is the democratic sharing of power, resources, wealth, and respect. If we don't get that kind of sharing, you're gonna get more violent explosions. Now the sad thing is that this neo-fascist moment in the White House, you got some neo-fascist brothers and sisters out there who are already armed. They show up there at the U.S. Capitol and they don't get arrested. They don't get put down.
1: You're probably never gonna hear these words come out of my mouth ever again, but here we go. Credit to CNN. <laughs> For having on Cornell West, because that was brilliant, um, very well said. So let's go through it here. I like when he said, "Our system doesn't nourish the soul and give us purpose." Um, I think that there's got to be one of the main reasons why people are out there is because they're really mad about happening with George Floyd. They want to address police brutality. But it also goes beyond that in that our, our system does keep us atomized and fractured. And you see people coming together for something greater than them. So it's our system doesn't give us purpose. People have, are creating their own purpose now and caring about something bigger than them. And it also is a manifestation of the pain... And the misery and the degradation and the poverty that's out there. And Cornel West says, militarism, poverty, materialism, racism, like the way our system is built, um, this was the logical conclusion. And then the thing that sets him apart from other commentators is that he's not, nobody's spared. Everybody's indicted. The whole system is indicted. And he's not you know, playing a game where he, he puts the blame all on the Republicans, which is you know, one of the things that's most common in, in standard Democratic circles. Um, he says the system cannot reform itself, which means – and he laid this out beautifully. He said Black Lives Matter started under a, a black president with a black attorney general, and, and they couldn't deliver. And when he says the system can't reform itself, that's him saying direct action is the only way, led to, I think, his most important point, which is we're, we're put in a situation now where it appears like it's either going to be nonviolent revolution or endless violence. So you need to set up a system that has a more democratic structure, democratic power sharing. Um, a more democratic economy, ameliorate the the extreme ills of capitalism or corporatism, and give people a fair shot, give people more equal power, give people you know a piece of the pie, some wealth, or you're going to see you know continuous violence. So he's really making an argument here for left wing values and. I mean, I just, I think it's an amazing breakdown. I think it's a brilliant breakdown. And the thing that, you know, I keep coming back to because I I see no way around it, is that, yes, the spark that led to this was George Floyd and the clear instance of police brutality. And so police brutality, in many ways, is at at the center of this. Um, But at the same time, you can't tell me that everything else isn't also feeding into the moment like somebody said on twitter the way that they're describing this in british newspapers is interesting because they just they're saying it's like it's only about george floyd like the stuff that's happening all across the country in all these major cities like that's about george floyd period and it's like that doesn't really capture it you know that doesn't that's not it that that's a big part of it yes reforming police departments, ending police brutality, bringing about justice, not just arresting these police officers or prosecuting them, finding them guilty. Like, that's all part of it. But don't tell me that the the current state of our country doesn't also weigh into this. Don't tell me that the fact that we're in a Great Depression as we have a pandemic, don't tell me that doesn't play into it. It absolutely plays into it. It absolutely plays into it that... We're going to have a mass eviction and foreclosure crisis as soon as the pandemic is officially declared over and we get back to business as usual. People can't pay the bills right now. So we have a Great Depression. We have a, a total economic collapse. And we don't have UBI. We don't have universal health care. Again, in a pandemic, 43 million people, up to that many, are going to lose their health care now in a pandemic. Don't tell me that that doesn't play a role here. Don't tell me it doesn't play a role when you have the pandemic and an economic depression hit, but the government steps up to bail out the stock market and corporations, a $5 trillion bailout package for the wealthy with no strings attached and no oversight. At the same time, the people got crumbs, a one-time $1,200 payment, and now, now they're asked out. Now they're screwed what now? What are they going to do? That's how you get, you know, the pent-up anger, aggression, misery, frustration. People see how disgusting and unfair and lopsided this system is. The deep income and wealth inequality, the fact that people feel like they have no chance at anything. And on top of that, police wantonly murder people. What did you think was going to happen? What did you think was going to happen? Of course there was going to be a backlash. Of course there was. I'm not defending the most egregious actions of rioters or looters. I'm not okay with you know, ransacking a small business. That's not right. But what I'm trying to explain to people is that it's like a math problem. It doesn't matter what you try to do to obfuscate. Three plus two equals five. So what just happened is a clear example of this is what happens when you do what, what's been done. This is going to happen. And here we are. So Cornell West, as usual, brilliant, breaks it down perfectly, and um, I hope he's allowed on mainstream media more. But more importantly, more importantly, I think he's one of very few voices who has the moral legitimacy and standing to lead these protests, and harness it towards positive ends. See, I've always told you guys on this show, I've always maintained, I'm not a fan of the kinds of protests where it's just like, we're just blowing off steam. We're just angry until we're going to get out there. What are our goals? Don't know. We're just mad. It's an amorphous show of rage. I get it. I get where it comes from. But that will be defeated. It's not a question. It will be defeated, especially when the government steps up their crackdown. It'll be defeated. So what you need is the kind of integrity, honor and moral vision and leadership to harness this energy and harness this will towards positive change. I mean, imagine you have Cornell West and Killer Mike, and we'll get to his speech in a second. It's brilliant. But imagine we had them leading it and harnessing the energy towards the solutions laid out in campaign zero. End broken windows policing, community oversight boards, limit use of force, independently investigate and prosecute, community representations, body cameras on the cops, no exceptions, training for de-escalation, end for-profit policing, demilitarization, fair police union contracts. Imagine the energy was harnessed towards that. Imagine the energy was harnessed towards UBI and a living wage, and, and Medicare for All. But you need that kind of leadership. You need the leadership. I know some people are very much in favor of, like, a decentralized thing, and there are reasons for that. But the only way you get the real change is by having a vision, being consistent, being persistent, and being unapologetic. So... I hope that, uh, you know, he kind of takes the reins of this because I think he's one of the few voices who's equipped to lead in this moment. Who's equipped to lead in this moment. You know, I'm not a big believer in hardcore identity politics, but I don't think a white kid from the suburbs (laughs) like myself is fit and equipped to lead in a moment like this. You need somebody with the, the, the standing and moral clarity and legitimacy lead, Cornell West, Killer Mike, Nina Turner, you know, somebody needs to take the reins of what's happening here and bring it the kind of stability, leadership, and clear defined goals that it deserves, that we all deserve. Okay, next go to Killer Mike. So I just showed everybody the uh, amazing CNN segment with Cornel West where he breaks down the moment brilliantly. Well, now I want to show you Killer Mike. Had an incredible speech the other night. Um, he's imploring everybody to stay calm but be strategic. And um, I think this hit just the right note. Take a look.
0: I'm the son of an Atlanta
3: City police officer. Uh-huh. My cousin is an Atlanta City police officer. And my other cousin is East Point police officer. And I got a lot of love and respect for police officers down to the original eight police officers in Atlanta that even after becoming police had to dress in a YMCA because white officers didn't want to get dressed with niggers. And here we are 80 years later. I watched a white officer assassinate a black man. And I know that tore your heart out. And I know it's crippling. And I have nothing positive to say in this moment because I don't want to be here. But I'm responsible to be here because it wasn't just Dr. King and people dressed nicely who marched and protested to progress this city and so many other cities. It was people like my grandmother, people like my aunts and uncles who were members of SCLC and NAACP, and in particular, Reverend James Orange, Mrs. Alice Johnson, and Reverend Love, who we just lost last year. So I'm duty-bound to be here to simply say that it is your duty not to burn your own house down for anger with an enemy. It is your duty to fortify your own house so that you may be a house of refuge in times of organization, and now is the time to plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. It is time to beat up prosecutors you don't like at the voting booth. It is time to hold mayoral offices accountable, chiefs and deputy chiefs. Atlanta is not perfect, but we're a lot better than we ever were, and we're a lot better than cities are. I'm mad as hell. I woke up wanting to see the world burn down yesterday. I'm tired of seeing black men die. He casually put his knee on a human being's neck for nine minutes as he died like a zebra in the clutch of a lion's jaw. And we watch it like murder porn over and over again. So that's why children are burning to the ground. They don't know what else to do. And it is the responsibility of us to make this better right now. We don't want to see one officer charged. We want to see four officers prosecuted and sentenced. We don't want to see targets burning. We want to see the system that sets up for systemic racism burnt to the ground. Will we use this as a moment? to say that we will not do what other cities have done, and in fact, we will get better than we've been. We got good enough to destroy cash funds. You don't have to worry about going to jail for some petty. We got smart enough to decriminalize marijuana. How smart are we gonna be in the next 15 or 20 years to keep us ahead of this curve? So that much like when South Africa suffered apartheid, you had Andy and other politicians that could make sure that Atlanta said, Coca-Cola, we love you, but if you don't pull out of South Africa, we're gonna leave. We're not going to drink Coca-Cola anymore. Coca-Cola jumped on their side, and apartheid is it. So we have an opportunity now. because I'm mad. I don't have any good advice. But what I can tell you is that if you sit in your homes tonight, instead of burning your home to the ground, you will have time to properly plot, plan, strategize, and organize, and mobilize in an effective way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I just said it in the previous segment, but I'll say it again. There are very... Few people who have the moral legitimacy and standing to lead in this moment. I think Cornell West and Killer Mike are two people who are equipped to lead in this moment, and I think they're showing it right here. So when you look at what's happening, I honestly believe that the backlash it's like a math problem. It was just gonna happen based on everything that's going on in the country right now. The killing of George Floyd, police brutality, generally speaking, but then also the fact that everybody's miserable, everybody's poor, we're watching the treasury get looted by corporations and the rich, the stock market's propped up with a trillion dollars in quantitative easing per day, as people can't pay the bills, there's gonna be an eviction crisis, there's gonna be a foreclosure crisis as soon as the pandemic is over, You know, you have unemployment over 20%, real unemployment over 20%. People are struggling. We don't have universal health care. We don't have universal basic income. We don't have a temporary nationalization of wages like we see in Germany, which is why their unemployment rate is 3.9%. People are miserable, and George Floyd was the spark that led to the wildfire. So... It was going to happen. This was going to happen. But even given that, we can say with moral clarity that all of the aggressive, authoritarian, tyrannical tactics and violence being used by the cops, that's wrong. That's wrong. And we've played for you on this show, we've played for you the compilation of all the cops being gratuitously aggressive and violent. And it's terrifying. They have no moral authority or legitimacy. But then we could also say that any kind of violence, looting, rioting, burning down small businesses, ruining people's lives in that respect, that's not okay either. And what Killer Mike is getting at here I think is true. And so I want to show you guys something here. This is from Omar Waso. Waso? Wasau, Wasu. I'm sorry I don't know how to pronounce that. But Omar is uh, an expert on this topic. He studied the civil rights movement for 15 years. And he published his, uh, his findings in Cambridge. So this is academic research. And let me show you the conclusion. This is what he says about how useful violent protests are versus peaceful protests, and what the dynamic is that plays out, and what led to change in the civil rights movement. So this this is fascinating. Look at this. He says, in sum, I find violent tactics by the state or protesters operate as a double-edged sword. State repression subjugates activists, but focuses media attention on the concerns of nonviolent protesters. In contrast, Violence by protesters can powerfully express discontent and offer a means of self-defense, but in the glare of mass media is expected to strengthen the coalition of those looking to thwart minority demands. Returning to the protest from Carlos G. Photo, one unnerving but maybe encouraging lesson from the 1960s is that while state repression can result in injury and death, images of police SWAT teams versus images of fleeing children likely helps the movement seeking justice for Floyd. So let me explain a little bit more clearly here what his research found, because this is stunning. So when protesters were peaceful in the civil rights movement and the police were also peaceful, There was like no coverage there was no coverage it didn't move the needle in one way or the other way it just was it just existed in the void peaceful protests with peaceful cops generally speaking with our terrible media is a non-story they don't care they don't cover it okay when you have violent protesters rioters looters what happens is the media covers that and uses words like looters, rioting, violence, thugs. And what happens is, and this is measurable, this is what his research found, it's measurable change in the population. In places where protesters were violent, you get a giant uptick in people believing in law and order, or being tough on crime, or restoring order. So one of the top issues instantly becomes law and order. we gotta, you know, we got to bring peace back here by any means necessary. If you want to crack skulls of protesters, you got to do what you got to do, man. There's violence here. We can't have it. And it's a measurable increase in public opinion, believing in law and order, and also the kinds of politicians that get elected and the kind of laws that get enacted. Now, so 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 far everything I've explained is okay hold on peaceful protests doesn't move the needle nothing changes and violent protests move the needle against the will of the protesters against it there's one scenario that I didn't discuss yet peaceful protesters and violent cops in that scenario when the protesters are peaceful no matter what no matter what and the cops are violent all of a sudden mass media and the broader population becomes incredibly sympathetic to what the protesters are fighting for so when this happened in the civil rights movement that made you know the white moderate that MLK talks about and says it's the most they're the most disappointing that made the white moderate that made broader American society listened to the concerns of the protesters, and so there was an uptick measurable in public opinion of a belief in justice in a belief in civil rights and It was only at that point in time when the the protesters were peaceful come hell or high water, and you had Bull Connor and you had the officers being the bad guy that we got the Civil Rights Act, we got the Voting Rights Act, and also there was an increase in politicians getting elected who believed in that kind of a philosophy. Because, and, and when you think about it, I mean, some would say it's just common sense, but that scenario set up a situation where it was like a comic book. It was, it was like a cartoon. It was, here's, here are the people who are clearly the good guys, who are deeply committed to nonviolence, and peaceful resistance, and here are the obvious bad guys. They're sicking dogs on peaceful protesters and turning fire hoses on them and, and beating them with the, with the batons, and it's all happening in front of our faces. And so people looked at that. They heard the leader talking about how, listen, I'm such a believer in nonviolence that I'm a pacifist. So not only am I not going to fight back, I'm not going to fight, but I'm also, even if you attack me, I'm still not going to fight back. That's how committed they were to nonviolence. And it worked. Because that's the thing that got the broader population to turn on the police officers and to sympathize with the, the demands of the movement. So isn't that interesting? I thought it was interesting because I guess my assumption was like, well, peaceful protest works no matter what. Wrong. Peaceful protest tends to work better when you're peaceful and the cops are giant pieces of garbage and they're authoritarian and tyrannical and they kind of become the comic book villain. That's when the peaceful protesters really work. So I think that's amazing. I will say there is one, there is one fact about both the civil rights movement but also um, like what happened in South Africa that I think complicates the situation a little bit, which is there's like, no pun intended here, but there's like a good cop, bad cop thing that happens with different kinds of protesters where there were riots in the street in South Africa and Nelson Mandela, who believed in nonviolence, was able to go to the authorities and say, hey, it's me or them, who do you want to deal with? You want to deal with the people rioting and looting and breaking stuff and And setting things on fire? Is that who you want to deal with? Or do you want to make a deal with me? What do you want to do? And so it's like playing good cop, bad cop with the cops. Or good cop, bad cop with the government. And then at that time, that's when Nelson Mandela got changed. And it looked like, oh, okay, he's reasonable. Let's work with him. Now, by the same token, Martin Luther King, you could argue, probably needed Malcolm X to some degree. Probably needed people who were more hardline. People don't know. At the time, Martin Luther King was viciously made fun of. For his approach of nonviolence. As you know, as Malcolm said, like, I'm not gonna sit there and sing we shall overcome as they're hitting me over the head with a baton. I'm not gonna do it. That's ridiculous. You're teaching people to not even stand up for themselves, even in a self defense kind of way. Absurd. So you had this interplay between like the violence, but then also the people who were deeply committed to nonviolence, and then what happened is the establishment was willing to work with the people who believed in nonviolence because the ones who believed in violence were scary. So there is a little bit of an interplay between like two wings of agents of change and protesters. You have the violent ones, and then you have the peaceful ones. And the violent ones make the peaceful ones seem a lot more reasonable and appealing. And so I think there is a little bit of a, maybe that's a slight contradiction to the finding of the research, but either way, I think that is a dynamic that's real, and that is a dynamic that exists. But, you know, what I think we need for today, and I think that the civil rights movement teaches us this, is we can't just have an amorphous, you know, an amorphous rage session that lasts a couple of weeks and then it's gone. You need strong leadership with moral clarity and clear goals to make this fruitful. And I think Cornell West and Killer Mike are rare voices who are equipped to lead in this moment where they can harness all of this energy and put it more towards peaceful, nonviolent resistance, but also have the goals. Im- implement all of Campaign Zero's reforms that they're calling for for the police department because they're all incredibly reasonable. Get UBI, get a Medi- you know, Medicare for All bill passed. Harness all of this energy to help fix society – and, and learn from the people who showed us beforehand what to do. So I, I fear, my fear is you're going you're gonna to get the, the rage and people are going to get it out of their system and then it's just going to kind of die, die down, go away, and um, there will be no policy change and no justice brought about for Floyd. Um, So I hope that doesn't happen, but I fear that's what's going to happen. We really need leadership to take the reins of this thing so that we can have a strategy and we can have the goals and we can have our eye on the prize and not stop until we get there. Let's hope that that happens. All right, next. Police officers from the U.K. are going to show American cops how it's done. This is basically a lesson on how to de-escalate a dangerous situation. Now, just so everybody understands, I'm not saying George Floyd was, was dangerous because he wasn't. Okay, uh, there's no evidence of that. But I really think this, this contrast that you're going to see what policing is like overseas versus what it's like here. This, is, this could be a real eye-opener for a lot of people out there who just kind of casually assume, they're like, what do you mean, the cops always have acted a certain way and that's the only way that cops act. No, if you have, if you have certain rules, if you have a certain philosophical approach to dealing with this, things can be very, very, very different. So this is a video, I'm not sure when this is from, Probably within the last, you know, 10 years or so, this happened. But look at how cops in the U.K. de-escalated a genuinely dangerous situation.
4: distraught man wielding not
0: scissors or a knife but a
4: machete all captured on a smartphone
0: from across the
5: street his ability to move is not completely obstructed by either the officers or by the vehicles but he is more or less surrounded you can see the man passing around on the street on moving forwards and backwards side to side front and back each of them trying to 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 verbally de-escalate the situation over a period of time. You could, you could probably say they contained him without restraining him. And they keep this situation going backwards and forwards for some minutes whilst other officers are bringing uh, what we would call uh, public order shields uh, to, the, to the location. And in a coordinated movement, they move towards him um, so that he could, there's, there's no way he's going to be able to use that weapon or go anywhere else. He's, he's placed on the ground with the use of the shields and the weapons taken from him. And then he's stood up and handcuffed and detained.
4: The incident ends with a man taken to hospital. Do you think that man would have
5: survived in North America? No. no, he wouldn't have survived. He would have survived a couple of minutes, probably. So, what's to be learned from that? Well, it is doable without firing your firearm.
1: I don't even need to say anything. I don't even need to say anything. Listen, I'm an American just like most of the people watching this show. You know, demographics are overwhelmingly Americans watch the show, although there are people from all around the world. But, you know, I also had, like, a little bit of a casual, lazy assumption of, like, well, I mean, in a situation like that where a guy's got a machete, like, yeah, what are you going to do? you got to defend yourself. If you shot him, that would have been considered an absolutely justifiable police shooting in the U.S., There's not a jury in the country that would have convicted a cop who shot that guy. But you don't have to do that. Like, there are ways to de-escalate that we know work, proven tactics that are used everywhere else. And then here's the key point, guys. It actually values people's lives. And that's just something we clearly don't have here. And I don't know how far you want to stretch this conversation, but you could talk about this in the context of our endless wars, our militarism, our empire, you know, the fact that we're bombing like eight different countries right now, still in Iraq, still in Afghanistan. Like, we just don't value human life that much. And, again, I mean, that, to me, that video says everything about how messed up our system is. And I don't – it's not like – yes, we can have conversations where we blame specific cops. But, like, the point is we shouldn't have a system that allows anybody to act like they act in this country. Like, I honestly blame the rules, the laws, the politicians at every level of government. I feel like I blame them more because you could have set up a system – where they act morally, ethically, reasonably, but they didn't. They kind of glorified this idea of a monopoly of violence, sort of like authoritarian overlords who kind of get a green light and are in a separate category. Supposed to be, in a civilized society, the idea is supposed to be that nobody's above the law, but... Clearly, I mean, again, the only one I could think of in this country where they found a police officer guilty was the Walter Scott shooting, and it was on tape, and it was so obvious that nobody could deny it, you know, whereas everyone that's like even a borderline one, even where you're pretty sure the cop's guilty and they're going to find him guilty, if there's any little wiggle room, it's like not guilty. So anyway, again, every time we, have, we do these segments on, on policing, I'm always compelled I know you guys have heard me say this a thousand times, but I'm going to say it a thousand more. I'm just warning you in advance because I like, I only like talking about this stuff, but if I could also give you the solutions, Okay, so how do we get to a place where our police officers act more like that? Implement the campaign zero reforms. End broken windows policing. Have community oversight boards so there's more accountability. Limit the use of force that cops can can use strictly, just like they did in this situation. Independently investigate uh, and prosecute cops who do wrong. Community representation in the police. Have body cameras on the, on the cops that cannot be turned off by penalty of law. Train and, and emphasize de-escalation, new training. End for-profit policing, that's a no-brainer. Demilitarize the cops, that's a no-brainer. Have fair police union contracts that hold them accountable. Right now they protect, protect them come hell or high water and most importantly, and the drug war, and the drug war, which really just gives cops a green light to over-police poor communities and communities of color. So this is what we have to do. There are answers. There are solutions. I don't want to be, like, fully nihilistic here, okay? Although long-term, I am more of a pessimist than an optimist. But I'm not going to be nihilistic and tell you guys, oh, there's nothing we can do. Let's just throw our hands up in there. No, there are clear things we could do. If other countries have managed to set up a system a hell of a lot more reasonable than ours, then Jesus, I mean, I read a stat yesterday. Since 2014, the Michael Brown killing, you know how many, how many people have been killed by police officers in the United States? 6,000. Now, I don't remember where I saw it, so please, by all means, fact check me uh, if you'd like, or, you know, see, see what the numbers are on your own here, but that's something that I read yesterday. Um thousand people compare that to the number of people who died at the hands of police in other developed countries some of them sometimes they have zero in a year I'm not kidding about that there's a better way to do it and we need to go down that path and do it now okay next Susan Rice went on CNN, and um, she knew where to place blame for what's going on in the country right now and the police brutality and the widespread uh, protests and and riots. Let's see what she says.
4: Who have come to try to hijack those protests and turn them into something very different. Uh, And they're probably also... I would bet, based on my experience, I'm not reading the intelligence uh, today uh, or these days, but based on my experience, this is right out of the Russian playbook as well. But we can't allow the extremists, the foreign actors, to distract from the real problems we have in this country that are longstanding, centuries old, and need to be addressed responsibly by new leadership.
5: You're you're absolutely right on the uh, foreign interference, because we know for decades The Russians, uh, when it was the Soviet Union, the communists, they've uh, oftentimes tried to embarrass the United States by promoting the the racial divide in our country. But what you're suggesting, Ambassador, is that they're still
4: trying to do that? Is that what you're saying? Well, we see it all the time. We've seen it for years and, and, frankly, every day on social media where they take Uh, any divisive, painful issue, whether it's immigration, whether it's gay rights, whether it's gun violence, and always racism, and they play on both sides. Their aim is not simply to embarrass the United States world. Their aim is to divide us, to cause us to come into combat with each other, to disintegrate from within. And I would not be surprised to learn that they have fomented some of these extremists on both sides using social media. I wouldn't be surprised to learn Uh, that they're funding it in some way, shape, or form.
1: They're funding it. Let's just get this out of the way immediately. There's absolutely, positively, zero, zero evidence of what she's saying. Zero. 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 There's no evidence for what she's saying at all. Not even a little bit. this is all they have. Okay. So Republicans are clearly not equipped to handle this moment because they just went from screaming about, you know, freedom and liberty and, and we want small government and it's tyrannical. They flipped like that. As soon as it was black people protesting, then all of a sudden it became, you know, uh, listen to the cops, shut up, do what they tell you, go inside, get off the street, Like, so they're hopeless, and they're in favor of all these, like, tough-on-crime, you know, solutions that are not solutions. They exacerbate the problem. So they're hopeless. But this this is what the Democrats are doing. If you're wondering what your standard neoliberal corporatist is up to, here you go. This is, it's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. She said, quote, this is right out of the Russian playbook, Russia had nothing to do with any of this. Wolf chimes in and says, oh, you're right on the foreign interference. You're right on the foreign interference. Based on what? Based on what? It's unbelievable. And then she said, "Quote, we see it all the time and every day on social media. They want to embarrass us and divide us. The United States does not need Russia to divide us. I got news for you. We're massively divided in a thousand ways, in a thousand ways on racial lines." on partisan lines on wealth lines massive divisions 1% versus 99%. See, this is this is the mindset of American exceptionalism that hey, we're like yeah, we have our problems, but generally speaking, we're okay. If anything gets a little too out of whack, Let's just blame it on a foreign agent, a nefarious foreign force, because then that excuses us. Then that means it's a little bit out of our control, and there's nothing we could have done to change it. I mean, it's a nefarious foreign actor messing with us. So that's where you put your emphasis. That's where you try to address it. Do something there, not... We've got to go after Russia, because they're the ones who are creating this thing here. None of that is true. But if she didn't say that, then she would have maybe had to acknowledge the fact, as the brilliant Dr. Cornell West said, that Black Lives Matter started under a black president with a black attorney general. And maybe the administration that you were part of needs to take some responsibility for doing Dickie McGee's acts. When it comes to police reform, you know, we have the solutions, we have the answers. Isn't it stunning in all the segments I've seen, uh, minus the Cornell West one, which was brilliant and credit to CNN on that one, but all the other chatter on the, the major media outlets, nobody's bringing up solutions to any of this stuff. Nobody is. Nobody's saying the campaign zero reforms, and broken windows policing, have community oversight, limit the use of force, independently investigate and prosecute, community representation for the cops, representation, body cameras on the police that they're not allowed to turn off under penalty of law, new training to de-escalate, end for-profit prisons, demilitarization, fair police union contracts. I'll add on top of that, end the drug war. The, like, these are the conversations we should be having, but neoliberal corporatists are so detached from any real attempt to fix the system now, that they just go right back to the same thing they always go to whenever there's any problem at all about anything. Russia. It must be Russia. When Trump got elected, Russia. It's got to be Russia. It's got to be Russia. In the case of Hillary, she said Russia, James Comey, the FBI, racism, sexism, deplorables. She got a laundry list of stuff that she was, ah, it's everything but, you know, but me and but us. That's the move here from the neoliberal corporatists. We can't own the fact that our country is broken and falling apart and corrupt beyond imagination and a hardcore authoritarian oligarchy. Can't own that, so we've got to pawn off some of the blame. Pawn off some of the blame. It's all it's gotta be Russia's gotta be involved in this in one way or another. And this is the mindset, by the way, which allows the US to further, you know, cement the ideology of American exceptionalism among the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, and also leads to further tensions abroad, leads to more war, leads to more military spending. Because what are we going to do? We, gotta, if Russia's if Russia's causing all this chaos, well, we better spend more money on the military budget to make sure that you know we could take them on if need be. She blamed Russia, man. She blamed Russia. Blame Russia. Russia has nothing to do with this at all. Blame the police officer who committed murder. Blame the other three who were on his back. Blame the fact that it was nine minutes. Blame the unaccountable nature and authoritarian nature of policing. Blame the lack of reform. Blame the fact... Shoot. Blame the fact that we have a pandemic and an economic depression, and we don't even have UBI, and there's going to be a crisis in this country, unemployment over 20%. All these things are homegrown because this country stopped making rational decisions a very long time ago. I don't know if we ever made rational decisions, but all the bright spots now are going away as well. So it's us. It's us own it so we can change it, but they don't want to change anything, which is why they don't own it. You could say, oh, this is just stupid of them. No, it's deeper than that. It's not just a stupid thing to say. If It's, it's an attempt to deflect blame, which allows us to not really address substantively the things that need to happen. We need to reform the police, but we also need to make this country a hell of a lot more equal. We also need to fight income and wealth inequality, do UBI, have universal health care. These are things we have to do. None of that's going to be addressed if the entire conversation is based around let's blame a nefarious foreign agent. All right, and now we're about two hours into the show, and... I'm now finally going to move on from this topic, okay? Here we go. So President Trump just signed an executive order against Twitter. Um, Here he is explaining why he did it, okay? And then I want to come back and give you a little bit more information about what's going on here.
5: Signing executive order to protect and uphold the free speech and rights of the American people. Currently, social media giants like Twitter receive an unprecedented liability shield based on the theory that they are a neutral platform, which they are not, not an editor with a viewpoint. My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. That's a big deal. They have a shield. They can do what they want. They have a shield. They're not gonna have that shield. My executive order further instructs the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, to prohibit social media companies from engaging in any deceptive acts or practices affecting commerce. This authority resides in Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission
1: Act. Okay, so so does this executive order have any teeth? Not really. Now, there actually is logic to what he's doing here because if – Twitter really wanted to act like a social media company, then what they are effectively is like a middleman or a message board. They're, they just are what they are, and then people come and post stuff on there. There's no curating. There's no editing. There's no changing anything. And that's originally what a social media company is. You're just kind of like a middleman for people to express stuff. So you do not get involved in you know, doing anything, changing anything when it comes to other people's thoughts, you're just the middleman, okay? When they start, you know, censoring, deplatforming, hiding tweets, put, fact-checking, all this stuff, that is, by definition, it's subjective. Because nobody's going to agree on, you know, what should be filtered and censored and hidden and and fact-checked, because and, there's... Of course there's going to be there's so much volume of stuff that's up there that what are you going to do you can't go through it all so then it's selective and enforcement and you know there's even a fact check of the fact check i told you guys there were actually nuances and 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 points that twitter totally missed when fact checking trump and and i think there was an outlet that pointed that out was like whoa 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 this isn't right and it wasn't even like a far right outlet or anything like that so Now you're no longer a social media company when you do that. Now you're more of a publisher because you're changing stuff and and editing and and nipping and tucking. (laughs) So that's not the same thing. And so what Trump is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to get rid of your liability shield because it used to be the case that if somebody says or does something wrong on Twitter, you can't sue Twitter because Twitter says we have nothing to do with what's being posted. We're just the middle man. So there's a logic to that. Why should somebody be able to sue Twitter if somebody does or says something terrible on Twitter, blame blame the person who does or says the terrible thing? It's not Twitter's fault. Oh, but it was up on Twitter. Right, but everything's up on Twitter. They don't get involved in the content. So for them to say, no, right, now we're going to fact check stuff, well, then Trump is kind of right. They're not just a social media company anymore. Now they're also claiming to be a ministry of truth. Why should they get liability protections then? So if you're going to change stuff, then people have the right to sue you. Makes sense, right? Now, ultimately, is this going to have a big impact on Twitter? No. And here's why, guys. They just had a lawsuit, and the results just came out recently. The verdict came in recently. There were a bunch of outlets or conservative organizations or conservative individuals that sued Twitter and said, you're discriminating against conservative viewpoints. And court said unequivocally, no, they're not. That's not what they're doing. So you lose the case. Twitter won the case. So my guess is even with getting rid of the liability shield, Twitter's going to win all the arguments against them. Because as a private company, they kind of get to pick whatever the hell they want to pick and do whatever they want to do in many respects. And listen, Trump, conservatives, this is what you ask for. This is what you guys claim to like about capitalism. Is that like, well, the company can do whatever the hell they want. It's their company. They get to make their decisions. okay well, then you might not like the outcome of that in some instances. And this is one of those instances. So even though the liability shield is gone, Twitter's going to win these cases. So it's not, so really, as many people pointed out, it's kind of like Trump is setting up a complaint board or something. Like, oh, you don't like what Twitter's doing? Here, complain about it with me. Like submit it to them or something, or submit it to the courts. It's not going to lead to anything. So it's kind of toothless what Trump is doing here. Now, what should he have done? Well, there's two different roads he could have taken. Um, Either one of these would have been better than what he did. He could have used antitrust law, currently existing antitrust law, to break up Twitter. He could have done that. Now, that would have been controversial. They would have screamed and, and moaned that, oh my God, this is authoritarian, and there's no doubt Trump would be doing it for petty personal reasons. It's not like he actually has principled Stances on the actions of Twitter. It's more like, don't do anything to me that I don't like. That's how Trump is. But he could have used antitrust law to break him up. Um, Or the thing that I prefer more is treat it like a public utility. Regulate it like a public utility. I'm not saying you fully nationalize Twitter, but you can regulate it like a public utility. And if you were to do that, then all of a sudden, that becomes the new public square and the government can't restrict speech in the public square, they, they basically can mandate an adherence to free speech and uh, mandate adherence to the First Amendment and, and make it so that really the only cases where you can go after people are instances where what they're saying would actually be illegal as well. So namely, so you can never do like direct threats of violence, for example. It's always been illegal and always will be illegal, and it should be illegal. But outside of those very few exceptions, if you regulate it like a public utility, you can basically make it so that it's, you know, you have the actual free and open platforms, as free and open as they could get. And honestly, I think it's a very American way to handle it, because we are one of the few countries that has, you know, a right to freedom of speech, and we have our First Amendment. And so, yeah, why not? If you believe in that, in the actual public square, why not in the virtual public square, which is what Twitter functionally is so and by the way if you agree with me on that congratulations that's a left-wing position so all the right-wingers who are listening to what i'm saying on this they go yeah i like that okay well that's a left-wing position congratulations you took a left-wing position you know what else you should do believe in that neutrality because that's the same concept here so um i this he didn't really do much here he could have done a lot more he didn't do it and uh it just it just kind of shows how Trump is. He barks, he moans, but in many ways he's just really ineffectual. Like he with, – um, with what's happening in Afghanistan. How many times has he been on Twitter? We're going to get out. We're going to get And then the, he just doesn't get out. Why? Because the generals are like, we're not getting out. And he's like, all right, we're not getting out. Like it's, he's just a cuck. And this is kind of like a cuck move. Oh, you came after me. I'm going to come after you, Twitter, but the thing I'm going to do is not really – there's no teeth in it. You really wanted to show them some teeth and do the right thing. You should have regulated. You should have regulated them like a public utility. Um, that would have been the way to go, in my opinion. Okay. Next. I think I'm going to pass on that one. Yeah, let's go to this one. Here we go. This is uh, a pretty big story that dropped last week, but it's been overshadowed, understandably, by everything that's going on. So this is in The Guardian. Michael Moore film, Planet of the Humans, was removed from YouTube... British environmental photographer's copyright claim prompts website to remove film that has been condemned by climate scientists. Okay, so, now, I don't know how many of you have seen this documentary or movie. I did get to see it. I saw it on YouTube before they pulled it down, so I guess I was one of the lucky ones, but they had it up there for free and everything. Um, So I watched the movie, and the movie is controversial, and I've seen... You know, on my Twitter timeline, I've seen basically it's a 50-50 split. Like 50% of the people are defending Michael Moore and saying, no, the movie's correct. And then you have another, the other 50% are basically saying like, no, it's not correct. There's a lot of factual errors in there. And he's actually inadvertently helping, you know, the climate science deniers by doing this movie, because in the movie he attacks, like, the, the green industry, the renewable, tech, uh, the renewable energy industry. So now, what's my take on it? Well, listen, I'll say up front, just so everybody understands, one of the areas where I'm not an expert, okay, I mean, is environmentalism and the climate. I'll just admit it up front, like, usually... The issues I know more about, I know more about war. um, I know more about the economy. Um, I know probably more than your average person when it comes to environmental issues and climate science, but um, it is not, I don't know as much about environmentalism and the climate as I do about war and as I do about the economy and many other issues. Now, but having said all that, my take on the movie, when I watched it, it was kind of mixed. So some of the stuff, I think, was a fair criticism. Like, like for example, he attacks this industry. I forget the, what it's called, but it's basically like they say it's, you know, clean energy, but it's just like they cut down trees and then you do some sort of process with the wood of the trees to create energy. And if you're chopping down trees all over the place, is that really good for the environment? No. And then also he shows how it's actually very dirty too. Like this, whatever it's called, again, I forget what it's called. It has kind of like an Orwellian name too, which makes it sound like it's, you know, really uh, really a, a clean energy resource. But he shows how people living in the vicinity of one of these plants they' you know, breathing problems and it's, it's toxic and there's all these problems. So like that's an example of something in the film that I'm like, oh, okay. So I didn't know about that. There are elements of the environmental movement. and this is the crux of the film, that the environmental movement and the green movement, that a lot of that is just as bad as um, the fossil fuel industry, because the way in which we get there, we actually end up using just as much oil or gas, create the green technology, if that makes sense. I hope I'm not butchering this in a thousand ways. But that's the gist of it. That's the gist of it. It's like, oh, okay, you guys think you're being heroes and saving the world, and you've got this environmental movement, this movement towards green and renewable te- uh, energy and technology, and it's like he g- goes through all of them and says, you know, here's how much oil and gas is used to create a solar plant or whatever it might be. Here's how much is used to create this other form of what's supposed to be green energy. So in other words, the green energy is not really green. And ultimately it gets it, it benefits the fossil fuel industry. And then he tries to show like, and leadership in the green movement knows this. And he's kind of portraying them as like sellouts. Okay. So that, that's the gist of it. Now, but part of the, the criticism that I have of the movie, movie is that he doesn't propose any solutions other than, other than to say, like, we can't have a perpetual growth economy. Like, we need to move away from this endless growth paradigm. And basically he's arguing, like, you know, he's implying it, if not outright saying it, that, like, we, got to, we just got to move away from capitalism and just reduce our consumption across the board. That's the only way to protect the environment. That's the sense that I get what he's arguing. But really that's implied there are no actual arguments as to what to do to fight back against climate change and to do the right thing. And, like, there are no solutions presented. So my takeaway from watching the movie was like, okay, that's depressing, and maybe he has some points, but he's not proposing anything, which just makes it sort of like a dark, nihilistic kind of film that's just saying, like, everything's messed up and here's how it's messed up, and that's it. And I didn't like that angle of it. I thought if you were going to kind of pull the mask off of the green movement, then okay, well, what are you proposing we do? Because, you know, it, you can't tear it all down and then not give, like, well, here's, here's a path that we can take, and he, he didn't really do that. So that's my criticism of it. Other people have said, um, you know, other people have said, no, there's just flat-out factual inaccuracies in there that may be true, absolutely could be true, but um, I highly doubt, like, all of the claims are false, like, there's a lot of compelling stuff that's in there that's really kind of overwhelming, so I think he's probably at least partially true, it's probably at least partially true, and he's at least half right that many in the environmental movement kind of know that it's not effective and kind of know that this energy is not the cleanest energy, but they go in that direction anyway, because they're getting you know, compensated quite a bit of money to, to run these organizations, and some of the money comes from sketchy places. So I think some of it's true, but I, I also think that there's plenty of people who are run-of-the-mill environmentalists who are like, they mean really well and they think they're doing the right thing, and it's a little bit too much of a broad haymaker punch at everybody involved in that, I think. But anyway, so as you can tell, I have mixed feelings on, on the movie, you guys can feel free to, I don't know if you've watched it or not, but watch it and then, you know, comment on it and tell everybody what you think, because it's, it's very controversial. But, but, now we get to the actual point of this segment, having it pulled down is total BS. Total BS. And as somebody who's a content creator on YouTube, I can tell you, this is weaselly horse crap. When you say, oh, I'm going to do a copyright claim against a tiny portion Of the movie, a British photographer is doing a copyright claim. They probably only show the picture for under 10 seconds. And the whole movie is being taken down as a result of that. I hate this stuff. I hate it. And we've all experienced it. If if anybody who's in the same field I'm in has experienced that feeling, that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach where you're like, somebody's really trying to, like, take down the video over this little thing that you use, and it's like, I have an approach that's the polar opposite, where, like, if somebody wants to critique me and they play, like, a little clip of me saying something so that they can critique me, I don't care. Go ahead. It's fine. I mean, because that's reasonable. Like, I use CNN clips. I use MSNBC clips. I use clips of other people. Like, this is, this is par for the course. This, how are we supposed to talk about these things if we don't show that? So, for them to do this really is weasely and gross, and it is censorship, and agree or disagree with what, what Michael Moore is saying in the movie. Everybody should say, no, leave it up. Leave it up. I mean, if a guy wants to whatever, I guess, charge a tiny amount to use the frickin' picture, okay, if Michael Moore has to cough up thousand bucks or something and say, here, now I'm paying you for the use of the picture, okay, that's fine. But that's not going on behind the scenes. It's not going on behind the scenes because the point isn't actually like, oh, I'm offended you use my picture. No. The point is, I don't like your movie, so now I want to censor it. That's what that is. And it's goddamn frustrating, man. Anybody who believes in censorship on the left or the right, God, they're so annoying. They're so annoying, and they don't understand. Like, what you're doing, that's the definition of authoritarianism. Those actions are authoritarian. When you want to shut up viewpoints you don't agree with, even if the viewpoint is egregiously wrong, that doesn't give you license to just try to totally... Take it down, which is what they did. So, listen, agree or disagree with Michael Moore on the movie. Um, it should definitely be left up, and they're correct to say this is censorship, and that's exactly what they're trying to do to him. And so if it starts like this, there's no end to it. Can anybody get anything pulled that they just don't agree with it, and so they find a Weasley way to try to you know, claim a copyright violation or whatever on a tiny portion of it? Is that the door we want to open up? Because there's no closing that door. Once you open the door to censorship and deplatforming and all that stuff, it doesn't close. And you might think, oh my God, well, I didn't like the thing that they're going after, so I'm not going to say anything. All right, well, when they come after you, then maybe you'll care. Because they will. That's the nature of the beast. They will eventually come after you. Okay. Let's do two more, and we'll call it a day. So while the country uh, was burning, and there were protests and riots and looting and, and all types of stuff going on, police violence, wanton, brazen, authoritarian, tyrannical police violence, while that was going on, Here's a story that slipped under everybody's radar, but it's massively important. The Trump administration, and this is from Sludge, by the way. They cover corruption very well, probably better than almost anybody. Uh, Trump administration finalizes rule that could protect foreign dark money in elections. The rule, which takes effect today, allows dark money nonprofits to cease reporting information to the IRS that the government would need to enforce campaign finance laws. So we have very, very, very lax campaign finance rules and laws in this country. Um, And really the reason for that is the Supreme Court, in a series of decisions that started in the late 1970s, they've effectively decided over time that money equals speech. So when you want to give money to a politician, that's an expression of your freedom of speech, so therefore, you know, there shouldn't be limits. Um, Now, of course, that's an absurd argument because money is not speech. (laughs) It's just not. Somebody made the point, I think it was Larry Lessig, had said, okay, if money is speech, then murder for hire should be illegal. Because when you're paying somebody to go commit a murder, you're not actually paying them to commit a murder. You're just saying with your speech that you're okay with murder. Prostitution should be legal then because, you know, you're not paying for an act. You are just expressing that you like the act. I like sex here. That's, you know, that's what that is. So, but in other contexts, everybody understands the idea that money is speech is ridiculous. But when it comes to money in politics, all of a sudden, they go, no, 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 money is speech. So you're just – they're trying to legalize bribery and corruption, and they've effectively done that. Now, there are still some rules as to how it works and what the limits are, what the caps are, but there's always workarounds. And so the, it used to be the case that nonprofits, okay, they had to report any, anything over like $5,000, they had to report the source of it. And so then we would know who's really involved in these nonprofits and who they're giving money to. And so what are the motivations for a lot of the actions of these politicians? Well, now they don't even need to report it, which means people could donate over $5,000 a pop. People could donate whatever they want to these nonprofit groups. The nonprofit groups can donate to the politicians. And, like, it could all be, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, a Chinese billionaire, an Israeli billionaire, Saudi Arabia, Russia, you know, they... Corporate Democrats love to fearmonger about Russia. Well, hello. Now we have a situation where foreign money, we already have corporate money flooding our elections to the point where politicians basically only represent corporations and the wealthy. What if they represented corporations, the wealthy, and foreign interests as well? So, literally, do the interests of foreign countries and foreign individuals over the interests of the American people? That's like isn't that like the definition of treason or being a traitor? It's like, yeah, I'm going to represent the will of this other country or whoever's giving me money from this other country over what the American people want. This is a joke, man. Our system, our country has become a joke. Rotten, corrupt from within. It's it's in front of our eyes. It's it's rotting every day. We've legalized corruption in this country. Now it's not just corporations and billionaires. Now it's foreign influence, too. We need fully publicly financed elections. We need to ban private money in elections. Now, you can't actually do that because the Supreme Court said it's a right, that money speech, and you could donate to politicians whatever you want. Um, So we need a constitutional amendment to change it. I mean, that's basically what we need because there's no other way around it. So we have legalized bribery in this country, and it's Honestly, it's getting worse and worse every single year, and in the Princeton study from like 2014 or wherever it was has never been more relevant, that your government doesn't represent you, and we could, we could track it with these, the actions that they do, the policies they pursue, what they implement versus what your will is, but they do represent the wealthy. So now it's going to be they represent the wealthy, they represent corporations, and foreign big money donors. So there is quite literally an international elite of a one percent at the international level, which is going to run everything. I know it sounds Alex Jonesy, but this is as clear as day. There's no conspiracy in this at all. The conspiracy is just out there in the open. So keeps getting worse and worse, guys. I wish I had some positive news to give you, but when we don't keep our eyes on the government and when we don't keep them in check. And when we don't let them know who's really the boss, there's no limit to what they try to get away with. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. I just want to give everybody a quick update. On the state of the election, I know there's a lot of chaos happening right now, um, all across the country, all these major cities. I've seen wanton, asinine, authoritarian, tyrannical police violence against peaceful protesters. That drove me nuts. I've seen rioters destroy small businesses, which broke my heart. Um, That shouldn't be happening. So there's a lot of stuff going on that's, you know, really depressing I mean, on top of what sparked this all, which is brazen police violence of what they did to poor George Floyd, they murdered the guy in broad daylight with the knee in in the back of his neck for nine minutes. I mean, now mix all that with the fact that there's a Great Depression right now, there's a pandemic. um, Everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. So with that being said, look at the newest numbers on the presidential race. Current real clear politics average 155 days before election day. Biden, 48.4. Trump, 42.5. Okay, so that's a pretty decent-sized lead. This is 155 days before the election in 2016. Clinton, 44. Trump, 42. So now Biden... Has a much bigger lead on Trump nationally than Hillary did at this time leading into 2016, the 2016 election. He's in trouble. Trump is in trouble. Now, you guys know, I've been, I've told you guys on this show for the longest time, um, I thought Trump would beat Biden. There was like an 80% chance that Trump would beat Biden. I really thought that. Um, But there are caveats. Because the world is a complex place. And the caveats were, bar some extreme scenario. Well, guess what? This is as extreme as it gets. You have a pandemic, over 100,000 Americans dead from the pandemic, probably millions who have actually had the virus. I know the official number over a million, but not over two. But I think in reality, millions and millions of people probably had the virus. The official numbers are always lower than the real numbers. So you have a pandemic you have an economic depression, you have over 20% unemployment, you have up to 43 million Americans going to lose their health insurance because they're losing their jobs. On top of all that, the spark that lit the wildfire was the police brutality. We are looking at a situation right now where... Biden doesn't have to say anything. Biden doesn't have to do anything. Trump could lose just based off the fact that everything's falling apart. It's that simple. Trump, this could, be, this could be an anti-Trump election in the same way that when 2008 came, it was an anti-Bush election. Now, Trump has only been in office four years. Bush was in office eight years, but people hated Bush by that time, if everything continues to degrade, like we're seeing, deteriorate, like we're seeing, and it probably will, very likely will, run a ham sandwich against Trump and the ham sandwich would win. And like, listen, this is how much I think Trump is in trouble. At this point in time, if you had Amy Klobuchar against Trump, Amy would be the favorite. If you had Mayor Pete against Trump, Mayor Pete would be the favorite. If you had Lincoln Chafee against Trump, Lincoln Chafee would be the favorite. I'm not kidding. You could, be, you could have all the political skill in the world, and, and you could be really clever and a brilliant strategist and have great political instincts. But if the country's freaking falling apart, and it is, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Because there are some elections that are just change elections. Anything but that. Anything but that. Anything but that. And right now, we're on the cusp of that. Now, I will say, and this is my final note of warning to everybody, um, this is so volatile, anything can happen, man. Anything could happen. It, things could change so quickly that Trump wins in a landslide. So I give you all this information, I give you these numbers with an asterisk here, which is, it's so volatile and it can change in an instant. And so this segment I'm giving you guys right now, it only has a shelf life of like a week. <laughs> then I have to come back next week and give you my state of the race feeling at that point in time based on all the evidence at that time. But as of right now, yes, Biden, I have, I have the numbers that in my mind, I told you guys last time, it's 60-40, Biden the favorite. I'm now ticking that up. As of right now, Biden is a 65% favorite, in my mind, to win the election. Um, Now, again, that's subject to change, but as of right now, that's where we stand. Trump's in trouble. He better get a move on, or else he's going to be gonzo. All right. We are done, baby. I love you guys. Everybody stay safe out there with the pandemic. End with all the protests and whatnot. Love y'all, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.